the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 297 premium for Wednesday, November 10th, 2010. edition of the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab. We don't need to tell you what the show's about because you already know, and thank you very kindly for being a subscriber. We appreciate each and every one of you. From Durham, New Hampshire, I am Dave Hamilton. And John Efron here in Fearful, Connecticut, and also... Hey, Pilot Pete's back. Two episodes mm. in a row. Yeah, is Launch that the legal? balloons. Yeah, I'm not sure it is. <laughs> Uh, is, that, is that what the protests are about? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. So, although technically I am sick because I did lop off a piece of my ear. So. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So if, if the chief pilot's listening, I, I really am. I really do have a medical condition. He does. That's right. He can. Oh, wait, I can, I can re-record the, uh, yeah, let's, let's go back and do another date. What we'll say. It's, uh... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there we go. At first I thought you were serious. I'm like, wait, did he screw up the date? Because uh, that happens, folks. You know, we we start things here. And uh, for example, the last show, we it we rarely ever get the second take right. The, most of the time it's the first take. But uh, but I believe second takes are the hardest to get right. Usually because Pete screws it up. Uh, I think it's intentional. I try not to talk too much in the intro. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> but if we have to restart, it's almost always the third time is the charm. But but this is the first take of this one. So if you're hearing this, it means everything went really, really well. Uh, and that said, John, I'm going to go ahead and make sure I'm recording the right thing. And I am. So let's uh, let's go to Adam. Hey, John and Dave. This is Adam Bend, Oregon. Um, I got a little tip. Uh for mail, and or, and then the question following up after that uh, regarding mail, uh, Mac mail. Um, the tip that I have essentially relates to uh, having certain issues with your mail account, as in, like, I have uh, Sync Together, which I saw on you guys, or listened to on your podcast at one point in time. Um, somehow it muddled up my mail between my laptop and my desktop. Um, essentially what happened is it went in and it tweaked on the plist file, uh, a port number and it basically made it. So I wasn't unable to, uh, receive or send email on my Mac account. So essentially what I had to do is the tip being, uh, go into my plist editor after going through a few steps, troubleshooting, trying to figure out where it was at. Um, and then actually through Time Machine, actually found a difference between the two, uh, what was current and what was before I did the sync together. Um, and actually oh. found it and then went in the PLIST editor and essentially took that port that it was enabling in the delivery accounts on the com dot, you know, apple.mail.plist and I essentially had to delete that, um, and then everything worked fine. So some things seem like they're, you know, really difficult, and sometimes it seems like it's the only option is a nuke and pave, sometimes the whole computer, sometimes certain portions of it, like replacing the plist, which inevitably, inevitably would have other ramifications of, you know, things that you've been doing currently. Um, you might lose some stuff. Things have changed, you know, since the error. So it's kind of simple. Um, but, yeah, it does take a little bit of time to go through it. And the PLS editor is not exactly something you should be terribly afraid of. Um, okay. So All right. So, uh, he, and he does have a question that, that he's going to ask. But I, I wanted to talk about this because, uh, and the question's related, so... We won't go too deep, but I, I like the, the troubleshooting procedure that that he went through here where he, he used Time Machine to pull up an older copy of a file to AB to see what had changed. I, I think that's a very cool idea, uh, especially with regards to preference files. If, if something used to work and now it doesn't, you know, look at look at the files by date and figure out what's changed and then AB them with your backup 
to to see what that change was. I think that's really, really cool. John, I like it. Yeah. In yeah. in this instance, if if I understand, and I think the second question will go on to that, but I, I don't well, need, I don't know if he needed to go to that level, but I applaud him for, uh, for doing so. And I think in general, and and also it's, uh, you know, we've suggested sometimes in the past when when you if if you do nuke AP list file, um, either use Time Machine, which everybody should be, or make a backup before you you whack a file right because it may not get reused almost in almost all cases that's one of the first things the program does is say hey is my plist file here oh it's not all right well i better fill one out with, with some defaults quick right 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 good point good point all right so let's go on to his question because I, it's related that's the first part second part is the question sticking together my desktop and my laptop on the mail um Certain things, yes, you can drag your files over um, and basically replace the mail on the laptop and uh, make it just like your desktop. Okay, that's fine. Now you go on the road. A lot of outfits, ISPs, either business or whatever, will block whatever port you're using, um, thinking that somebody's trying to spam through their their, uh, system with your email. How it, is there anything new out there that essentially lets you mask your mail ports so they don't know that you're actually sending mail through their system, um, whether it be ISP or business, through their firewalls, so that you can actually run your laptop just like it, you know, as if it were at home? Uh, yep, there is. And I think we've got enough of the question here. So, so what Adam is talking about is oftentimes, especially on hotel networks or shared Wi-Fi networks, when you try to send mail, it will block outgoing connections on port 25. And the reason it does this is because port 25 is, of course, what's used for for talking to a mail for mail servers to talk to each other. Computers are. Individual clients are actually not supposed to talk on that port, although many do because that's the port that mail servers are always going to answer on. Uh, But really, that's built for server to server communication. Um, And what happens is a lot of spam and typically Windows uh, uh, viruses generate this stuff, blast out uh, spam to these these ports. And and of course, that's bad. And you don't want your public access Wi-Fi network to be this magnet for people that want to spam or even people that unknowingly are spamming because they've got some virus on their machine. So they just simply block port 25 and you're done. There are, of course, other ports to use. And and you can see these listed um, it, inside mails preferences. John, I think you you had the path when we prepped this uh, the other day. Do you have it in front of you now? Uh, for the outgoing, yeah, for outgoing, how to, yes. how, to how to get there in mail, right? So you got a file, no preference. I'm sorry, you got a. What mail. do you mean no? You don't. The preferences is not in the file menu. Oh wait, mail menu. You're yes. correct. Okay, because I had the other window up, and then accounts, and you click on the account in question, and you'll see an account information tab at the bottom is a choice outgoing mail server. Yep. Oh, that's not quite it. But then if you go to the edit SMTP server list entry, which you told me about this, Dave, and they hide that pretty well. Yep. <laughs> and then that's a list of all the SMTP servers that are known to mail. And um, and I think this kind of addresses the earlier question, too. I'm wondering right. if, um, if the plist entry was, in fact, uh, something that this setting could also have addressed. Yep. So, yeah, that's right. So in there, you've got two tabs. You have account information and advanced. Go to the advanced tab and you'll see... Mail says use default ports and then it lists 25, 467 and 587 or use a custom port. Uh, I recommend for everyone, especially people with mobile devices, uh, your iPods, your your iPhones, your iPads and of course your your MacBooks or MacBook Pros. Uh, I highly recommend using a custom port here. So port 25 is what we discussed the, the kind of the server to server port for mail. Uh, port 587 is the uh, unencrypted and it can be encrypted. So it's it's not entirely correct. But port 587 is the non SSL port 
to be used by an individual client to talk to a mail server to, to submit a new message. So at the very least, you want to use 587 and most mail servers are going to answer on that. However, the best port to use is 465. And then you want to check that use secure sockets layer uh, checkbox right below that. That's the port you want to send mail on. And my guess is it's po certainly public networks are going to block port 25 most often. Some might even block 587, but I can't imagine any that would block port 465 because 465 is is the SSL port. Typically, it requires authentication. So you've got to use, you know, your your username and password that you would use for the mail server. And and that should work just fine. If it doesn't, uh, G, you know, if your mail server doesn't support SSL outbound, and I think all of them, well, most of them do these days, uh, go get a Gmail account and then that will uh, that'll certainly let you do it. But that's that's the uh, that's the magic answer there. And I think, like you said, John, I think this is where the setting that he that Adam found in the P list file actually lives in the in the user interface here. Right. The only other thing I'll mention when you're traveling, um, what will happen is that normally your mail, at least if you're doing SNMP, you know, outbound normally expects someone on its own network to talk to it. And a lot of times if you're on the road and you plugged into a hotel network, of course, you're on a different network. Right. And if your SNMP server is the same, then normally if, if it lets you get lets you get to it, which it has in the past, and, and I'll finish this up. Normally, it'll say, what are you, nuts? You, I, I'm not going to talk to you because sure. you're trying to get to the mail server. And I think this is called an open relay, which they want to avoid. Um, or that's another problem. But if a outgoing mail server sees you're coming from outside, it's going to reject it because that you know can cause lots of spam. What I've had, if but, one but is not available, if, not if you're on, not if you're doing ports 465, that that's what it's right. built for. Right. Right. So right. Like, yeah. yeah. 25 being a legacy thing at all that um, usually those are uh, clamped down and typically they're not authenticated either. And that you, if you can right. talk to it, a lot of them, yeah, they don't even ask for a password or anything. But what you well, can do you is know, to, to, to just be clear and, I'll, and then I'll let you finish port, right. port, port 25 is meant for mail coming into a mail server. So, for example, the server that handles BackbeatMedia.com's mail, it's not going to accept mail from, it will accept mail from the entire world as long as that mail is for Backbeat Media or MacObserver.com or, you know, whatever. As long as that mail is for a domain that it hosts, it will accept it. But if, for example, you try to send mail to someone at Mac.com on that server, it's going to say, oh, no, no, that, you know, that person's not that that domain isn't here. I'm not going to accept that mail. You've got to go send that through a server that that, you know, you've got to talk to Mac.com's mail server. And and that's where the, that's why port 25 has to be open to the world, because the server's got to accept its own mail. But uh, but it's going to block everything else. And, and, and that's why 25, like I said, is really for server to server communication. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So there you go. Yeah. Go ahead. Of yeah. course, it's a yeah, I, I agree. And uh, but, you know, you can be specified in the mail client. And sometimes if you can find the name of the S of the uh, outgoing mail server on the network that you're on, then it'll accept it. In which case, you'd have to get the IP and then reverse lookup and all that stuff. And I've done that. So, you know, say you're at, you know, in a hotel and maybe it's mail.hotel.com. That is the mail ser outgoing mail server on that network, in which case then the you, you would be able to send the mail. But, um, but, yeah, the other things I agree are, you know, a much better way to solve the problem or webmail. You know, I find that's the yeah. most portable thing. Yeah, good point. Good point. That's right. Webmail deals with it because the, the mail is being sent through the server you're talking to, not through uh, not from your your client. I'll often do that when I'm traveling. I won't even bother trying to wrestle with mail app. I'll just, you know, go, go to Safari. Yeah. Good call. Good call. All right. All right. Uh, moving on to Chris. Chris says a Firefox extension was recently released that allows its user to view the active web sessions of the other people on a public network and allow them to log into that user's account. A person using this extension can easily gain full control over another user's account on sites such as Facebook, Twitter, and Google. And, you know, he didn't put the name of this in here, and we ran an article on it at TMO, and I can't remember the name of the extension. Do you remember the name of the, either one of you? Remember the name of this extension? Uh, All right, I'll, I'll let you guys look it up, and I'll, I'll explain. Yeah, I'll explain what it does. Essentially, it sits and, and monitors the traffic on the local network 
and picks up the way the authentication is working between, let's say, Pete and I are on the same network because we are. If Pete goes and interacts with Facebook from here and I'm running this extension inside Firefox on my computer, uh, as long as we're on the same local network, which we are, my computer can see that traffic and then act as though I'm Pete's computer and go interact with Facebook. I could cancel his account. I could, you know, certainly post to his wall. And the same is true with Twitter. And I think also as, as uh, Chris points out, Google services, anybody got the, uh, looking. you're still looking. Okay. Uh, so we'll come back with the, with the name of the extension, but uh, as Chris moving on with Chris's question, he says, uh, needless to say, this is concerning to anyone who uses an unencrypted public Wi-Fi network. In fact, it could be an encrypted network. As long as all users are on it, it doesn't matter if the network itself has encryption. So Chris goes on to ask, I have another Mac running at home and was wondering if it would be possible to VPN from my mobile device to my home Mac. This should give me a secure tunnel from my device on a public Wi-Fi hotspot and allow all of my Internet traffic to go through my service at home. Mac laptops, iPhones, and iPod Touches all support VPN connections. Do you guys know of a way to do this? So essentially what Chris is asking to do is instead of having, if he's on a public network, it may be a he, it might be a she, I don't know. Uh, if, you know, from a public network, normally your device, iPhone, iPad, computer, is going to talk directly to, in this instance, Facebook, Right. What Chris wants to do is tunnel to his computer at home so that his device talks to his computer at home and then his computer at home acts essentially as a proxy on his behalf. Although we're not really talking about a proxy server in that sense, but it acts on his behalf to to reroute that request to and from Facebook. That way, only the people on Chris's local network at home could compromise his data and in all you know for the most part that's going to be okay fire sheep fire sheep that's it that's right well and the question i had it let's say you don't do the vpn as long as you're uh, on a secure link to say your bank then you're still in that in a tunnel anyway as it were no one can see that's still encrypted traffic to your bank but right right, but but uh twitter Right, all the open stuff. All the open stuff is open. That's right. Sure. Yes, secure web pages are still secure with with FireSheet. That's right. That's right. Okay, so the question is, and and this this question, we could go on forever with the answer to this, John, but the question is, how? what can Chris do at home in order to set up a a VPN, which is a virtual private network, or a Mm -hmm. tunnel between his computer or devices remotely, and his connection at home. What can Chris do at home to act as a server for this VPN? As Chris said, all these devices have the ability to be a VPN client, but they don't apparently uh, on the surface anyway, have the ability to be a VPN server. So how does Chris go about setting up a VPN server at home without driving himself bonkers? Well, you know, I think there are a couple of ways there. there I think I think you have the first and and I would say preferred way. So, all right. So I'll go VPN I'll, services. Just uh, go ahead. And yeah. then, so VPN virtual private network. So I, I think it, it it accomplishes two things. One, it makes you a virtual though distant member of a network, like a home network, and right. then it gives you an address that makes you part of that network or appear to be part of that network, and the traffic is secured or encrypted. Okay. So I think those are the two things that are accomplished. Now, where you accomplish it is is the big question here. Um, And VPN, it doesn't. It can be implemented in multiple places, and I think the best solution is something that you do, Dave. I do. So, so one option here is to have the VPN software on on your router. That that's right. So you know you've got your cable modem or DSL modem or whatever it is that provides your internet access to your house uh, or your office or whatever it is, and then. Typically, most people have a router connected directly to that. Uh, you might have an Apple airport base station. You might have a time capsule. You might have a Linksys router, you know, DD, uh, sorry, uh, D-Link, Netgear, any of those, right? Something that's going to manage your network, share your network connection amongst all your computers and all that good stuff. It is possible for that router, for that device to be a VPN server. Now, Apple's devices do not have the software in them to support this. Uh, 
Most uh-huh. devices don't. You've heard me talk about, uh, if you've listened to the show for any length of time, you've heard me talk about a, P, a firmware called DD-WRT. Uh, it's, it's a third-party firmware. It's free to get, and you can install it on a lot of third-party routers. Apple routers not included in that list. However, uh, it's much easier if you're going to start out of the gate to simply buy a router that has it. And there is one company that sells routers with DDWirt built in, and that is Buffalo. Uh, they're WZRHPG300NH is a router that has the full full DDWirt, including VPN services built in. And, and it makes it really easy to set this up. You don't have to leave a computer on. Your router's going to be on all the time anyway. Uh, and you don't have to worry about, you know, your router's firewall getting in the way of of, of anything else. You're, it just does it. Uh, and it works really, really well. I use it all the time when I travel. Not only uh, for what uh, for what Chris is talking about, but also to connect to my computers at home. If I want to remote control a computer uh, or or whatever, I connect to the VPN and then it's as though I'm I'm here at home. I don't get to see my family, of course, but uh, I don't get to sleep in my own bed. But I do get to control my computers and print to my printer as if I was here. So so that's that's one option. But if you've already got a router and you don't want to buy any more hardware, and you want to use a computer that you already have at home, like Chris does, uh, John. And here's the other option. And then we'll, once we're done, we'll talk about how to actually connect to it. Right. But that comes at the end. So the other option, Dave, is you would take a computer that's on your network and make it a VPN server. Okay. And Apple, as it so happens, makes a OS product that does this called <laughs> Mac OS X Server. And so what ha- that has is... a equivalent to what you're talking about. The VPN software, rather than being in the router, is in the Mac OS X server computer. And I won't go into the glory details um, of setting it up. Now, the, the interesting thing, though, Dave, is that you can accomplish this. So, so the easy way to do it is, is to buy Mac OS X server, and it has all the administration tools, because the, there's the router, a lot involved the, in the doing Buffalo this. The Buffalo router is going to be uh, significantly cheaper than, uh, than Mac OS X sure, server. Sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I forget how much that is off the top of my head. Yeah, yeah not not cheap. Okay. Um, the, 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 the nice thing, though, is that the guts of this, like a lot of things in OS X, the guts of how to do this are buried in the operating system. It's just that OS X Server offers you a nice way to administer and manage it because there's key creation and routing tables and you know IP ranges and all that stuff. But there are ways to accomplish it on client. And one that I found, Dave, I haven't tried it yet, um, but it's something I think was open source, and now it's a, a product you can uh, buy. It's called IVPN, uh-huh. and it provides access to some of the things underneath the covers. Like, for example, if you want to see, uh, you know, just get a glimpse of what this is all about, if you go to the terminal um, and you do man VPND, most things, of course, uh, in Unix, when they end with D is a daemon or demon, and that's usually you know a server-type process, I think. Typically. Anyways, there's something called VPND, and it is on the client version of Mac OS X. So it the thing is, is, there is the potential. Yeah, well, go to the command line yeah, and type no, VPND. I'm I, I already did. I'm, I'm following There's another process. You said to do this, yeah. so I did it. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are, so one, there's a, this IVPND, I, I want to try it, but it claims to let you have uh, set up a VPN server without having the Mac OS X server product. Uh, there are also articles I found one Mac uh, at Mac OS Ten Hints and another at um, theilluminatedengineer.com. There was a pretty good, uh, from what I could see, step by step of all the nastiness you have to go through in order to set up a Mac OS Ten non-server system in order to offer VPN services. So two options. I- I'm with with you. I-, I would much rather get a device that has it built into the firmware. Oh yeah. Um, and then the other side, now how do you get to this? And the thing is, it is kind of hidden here, but if, if you want to see how you would go about this, Dave, um, they used to have something called, uh, I think it was Internet Connect, um, but they got rid of that app, and now it's actually part of the network control uh, system preference. That's I'm right. going to stop saying that. <laughs> so yep. it, it's burned in my brain. So if you go to System Preferences uh, Network, and in the lower left-hand corner of that screen, so you should see a list of your interfaces, like Ethernet, Bluetooth, modem, think about these on this computer. Right. Uh, uh, if you click on the plus sign, it will then say, oh, could you define a new interface for me? And you're like, sure. And there's going to be a choice, a VPN. 
Uh, if you're on Leopard, you're going to get L2TP over IPsec and PPTP, which are two different uh, VPN protocols. Okay. Under Snow Leopard, fortunately, they added this Cisco IPsec. Yep. Which works with Cisco. I guess they call them concentrators. But uh, this is something that I used at one point. So before, you needed the proprietary Cisco client in order to make a VPN connection. Then in Snow Leopard, they built that capability into the operating system. And once you define this interface, typically you're going to be providing the name of the VPN server or network device, whatever it is, and probably the username and password. Huh. And once that happens, yeah. if everything's working properly, then all of a sudden your computer will magically be part of that network. Yes. And, it, uh, well, there, and, the, and there, there is an option to set, uh, especially for, for Chris here, when you're creating this VPN, if you hit, I believe it's advanced, um, mm -hmm. You can, in fact, you know what? I can open it up on this computer. I want to get this right. Uh, by default, I I think, uh, yeah. So if you if you're in, you've created this VPN. You go to advanced. Uh, you want to make sure on the options tab that the send all traffic over VPN connection is checked. Now, for some use cases, you may not want this. If your only reason for using the B VPN is to gain access to the devices that are also part of the VPN's network, then you don't need to check this box. Uh, in fact, it's far more efficient not to, because when you go to load something like Facebook, you want to just load that directly. You don't want to have to tunnel through your home connection to get that. But in Chris's case, he does want to sacrifice some of that, that throughput or some of that performance for uh, or some of that efficiency, I guess, is really the, the, the right term to use for the security of going everything through the VPN. Uh, of course, you're limited not by your downstream connection at home, but by your upstream, which is typically the slower of the two, because it has to now download all this stuff and then send it back to you uh, up the uh, up the pipe. So uh, so in Chris's case, you want to make sure that box is checked. In other cases, like for me, when I'm when I'm traveling and really my only reason to use the VPN is is to access home resources, it's actually really handy not to have it go through, but yet still be connected. Uh, so you can you can break right. that and you can choose that option on your iPhone or your iPad as well. The the iOS devices have that have the ability to, to decide that, too. Uh, can, can I jump in? Yeah, I was just going to uh, say, okay, that, yeah, uh, there are people out there also that uh, are either on satellite or um, maybe some people still on dial up. Hush, you say. Um, and, and those people obviously can't VPN into their homes. So there are services out there like Strong VPN, Hotspot VPN for seven, eight dollars a month. And that's what I was using before I went to the router method. So okay. there, there are commercial services that allow you to use their servers as VPNs. And that creates that secure tunnel that you're looking for. OK. And I know a lot of people were using uh, those types of services if they if they were overseas and wanted to gain access. If you to, want to watch your Netflix and exactly. you don't want the sorry, you're not in country. Error. Yep. Yeah, you can't stream Netflix if you're if you have a U.S. Netflix account and you're trying to stream from, you know, I don't know, Japan or Hong Kong or yep. whatever. You cannot. Netflix won't let you do it. But if you send all your traffic through your VPN, well, now Netflix thinks you're at your house and they'll stream the stuff happily. Of course, it, it again goes through that inefficiency of routing through your house, but it gets the job done. So. Anything else, John, before we move on to yet another geeky topic? More geeky. I know. Um, I hope you folks are enjoying this show. How can you get more geeky than that? Well, we're about to show you. <laughs> All right, Pete. here it goes. Okay. How funny I should ask. Huh? Now, the comment you made before, I'm, I'm, I agree. And so our article comes to this conclusion. Um, and then I'm surprised that they still allow people to log in with a non-secure page because as, as you probably all know, but if you don't, if you preface a web page with HTTPS, right, then everything is secured using SSL. And, and I've seen this option also, Dave, and I'll typically uh, enable it. Assuming uh, even the, Twitter, assuming the the, uh, the the host supports it. Right. For right. example, I can go to HTTPS colon slash slash Facebook dot com. And uh, as far as I can tell, that's a secure connection. Oh. Um, but I also have that option, you know, like, for example, the Twitter client I use has an option saying, hey, would you like to encrypt your Twitter stream with SSL? I mean, a lot of it's open. But sometimes, you know, like if you're sending a DM or something like that, that may be somewhat private. So, yeah. so always look for an SSL option in whatever software you're using, whether it be, you know, email or web browser to avoid these sort of problems. But, um, yep. Cool. All right. Ready to dive even into geekier waters. Let's let Tom take us in. Tom writes, I do a, 
at, at home a fair bit of video using Final Cut and also quite a bit of Photoshop. My question is, would the XGrid feature on Mac OS X make any difference in the performance of these applications? Do they need to be connected by Ethernet cable to get a big difference, or would wireless also see a big increase? Last question, any idea of what type of performance increase you would see while rendering out a movie? Any info on this would be appreciated. Uh, okay, so the first thing that I want to briefly discuss, and we'll, I think in our, in our discussion we'll probably touch on more of this, but in, in a very general sense, XGrid is the ability to have multiple computers, Mac OS X's ability to have multiple computers working on the same job. It's a distributed computing uh, architecture or, or feature, I guess. Uh, and, it, and it is. It's built into Mac OS X client, and you can manage it with the server and, and all of that stuff. Uh, Apple made a big deal about this when Mac OS, I think it was Tiger came out, right? 10.4 was, was when we, we saw XGrid. And really, we haven't heard a lot about it since then. Tom highlights the use case that many of us would like to use, you know, crunching videos in iMovie or, uh, you know, dealing with pictures in Photoshop or or even even in iPhoto. Right. You know, anything where you're sitting and waiting for your computer to get a job done. Well, yeah, what's this X grid thing? I got a network of computers. Can I can I use that? And John, the answer is, well, not really. Uh, Unless. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what you do is you go to the application you're using, you go to the preferences, and you find the preference that lets you specify an XGrid uh, controller. That's right. Yeah. Good. Good luck. No, I'm, I'm being into. I'm being entirely serious. That's absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. Good luck finding that in any application uh, that uh, that Apple has for us to do this stuff. Right. That that's the sad part of this is that the apps themselves, in order to make this work, the apps have to be built. To to separate, let, let, you know, let's think about this, right? You've got multiple computers. You want them all to work on this job. Well, your app needs to know, let's say it's crunching video, for example. doesn't matter what the app is, uh, but it's going to do some job that normally would take, you know, an hour or two on, on one computer to, to crunch this video. Well, the app needs to be written to break that job up into multiple segments and then farm those segments out. Uh, to to these other things, the XGrid controller can decide where they're going to go and manage, you know, who has what and, you know, reassemble it all when it comes back in. But the app needs to be written to chunk it up. And and none of these apps are. And that's that's the problem. I, uh, you know, I think and, and John, you you looked a little deeper into this, but I, I think it's possible to submit any application to XGrid. But. It, but only from the command line. And even then, it's only going to run on one computer unless it's built to go and, and do this, you know, multiply, multiply, uh, a multiple segment type job. Right. Here's what I found. So, so you're correct. And, and I think the term that they used in order to consider a job, even a candidate for this, it has to be performing a task. I think they call it embarrassing or obviously parallel and i think they had the word embarrassing in there i'll find it in the documentation but it's a problem that when you look at it it's very easy to take take it and break it up into little bite-sized pieces and i would say that rendering a movie is a good candidate a lot of graphic operations you got a fixed set of data right you know or fixed size data you got a fixed uh, definition of what's going to be done what algorithm is going to be run and it's probably going to come back in a, in a you know reasonable amount of time right Yes. So because I tried, I, I did. And actually, Dave, the, this is a, a recurring theme here is that the ability to run XGrid, although another nice feature on Mac OS X server, because server lets you define the controller and the agents and uh, what else and the clients. So I guess there's three parties in an XGrid system. Right. You can invoke this on Mac OS X client as well. And I actually found a little um, I, I was actually trying it on my MacBook. Uh, Pro, which is not running server, but I found a cool little prep pane called XGrid Lite, which gives you a prep pane that lets you activate XGrid on your computer. Yeah, whether when it's running client, and I was able to submit jobs, but but the thing is, Dave, so uh, the the mechanics, or at least the the stuff that I went through with the command line, is that I was able to submit a job, 
Um, or, or they give you a sample, which is a better way to do it. So it does, I think, a Mandelbrot calculation. So it, it knows how to break up, and eventually you'll see something render on the screen. And if you watch the controller on the other machine, you'll see it handing out these jobs to, to the different computers. So I, I think any job can be submitted, but whether it's whether it's been written to think in little pieces is is the key. I mean, if the app is just going to render the movie, then there's no point because I don't think XGrid is smart enough to say. I'm going to break up the job for you. So, so your software has to have an accommodation somewhere. And they have a programmer's guide that I found that, that you know, gives you a process to do this. But I, I think the answer is, yeah, like you said, is that I, I'm not aware of any off-the-shelf application software that knows how to talk XGrid. Yeah, it, you know, it, what you, you don't want the whole application going XGrid. For example, take, take iMovie, right? You, you don't want... Anytime you launch it to have it launch on four different computers, or even one and not know where it's running. You want to be able to interact with it on your computer. You want to launch it on your computer. But then you would want it to when you say go and, you know, you set all your parameters, you build your movie, you do everything you want. And then you say, OK, go render this thing. That's the point at which you want it to chunk it up and go farm it out and then bring it all back. And it's simply not written to do that. Uh, you know, Handbrake is one I use a lot. And I would love for it to be, uh, you know, gridified, if you would, because it, it because it takes, you know, on on my machine, it's a dual core machine that I run it on. And it takes a couple hours per movie. Well, it'd be great if I could get it to take 15 minutes per movie and utilize all these cores that are just sitting around. If I had an eight core, you know, machine that I ran it on, then it would do it. But it's not as simple as just saying, yeah, run it on these processors. You need to decide what data is going where. And you need to be efficient about it because you're using the network uh, to move that data back and forth. Uh, there is a piece of software, actually, that I used to use a lot called DVD to 1X. It's DVD to O-N-E-X or DVD to 110. And it's built to do something similar to Handbrake. It takes the data from a DVD and 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 crunches it down to fit uh, in you know a smaller size and it didn't support X grid or doesn't support X grid. It does, but it does support a grid mode of its own. And what you do is you launch DVD to one X on multiple uh, computers. And on one, you put it in master mode and on the others, you put it in slave mode and it operates just like I talked about. You go on the, on the master and you configure what you want to happen. You set your parameters, you pick which movie, and then you say go. And at that point, starts blasting the job out to all these other computers. Even it didn't make it that much faster um, because, because again, there's all that, you know, you're moving a lot of data across the network. So, uh, you know, there might've been a way to make it more efficient. I don't know, you know, on their side, but even they said, look, you know, you're not going to see a huge increase with this, but well, you might see something. And, uh, and it was actually pretty cool to, you know, to be able to see the CPUs on all these machines just all of a sudden fire up. up. Yeah, and it, it, it was. I mean, you know, it definitely went faster. It, it wasn't, you know, if I was running on three computers, it wasn't three times faster. There was definitely some overhead lost, but, uh, but it might have been twice as fast. And that's, you know, for a computer that was just going to sit there idle anyway, uh, that's not a bad thing. But, and you know, I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think they let it kind of fade in, into obscurity because some of the web pages are the original material on XGrid. I, you know, I saw that kind of, yeah. Yeah. Um, not be addressed, but also now I think the thing is in the age of multi-core processors is the important, unless you're talking, you know, a rendering farm, like if, you know, like Pixar or someone like that making a movie and they use something I think called Renderman, which obviously does some sort of distributed processing right. <laughs> uh, on those frames. But uh, I, I think that that may have taken a backseat. So there's still going to be people that are hardcore and want to, you know, run whatever that needs thousands of processors. But you know, with what, what you can get right now on the Mac. I mean, what, what can you get up to 16 now, I think? Yeah, is that right? I, I should know this off the top of my head. Can the Mac Pro do 16? Oh, you know, I thought it was 24 virtual cores. Yeah. On the yeah. Mac Pro. Yeah. Yeah. The cops are coming to get us because uh -oh. we, don't know, yeah. we don't know what happened. That's right. I got to talk to these people. I'll be right back. Okay, yeah, you do that, John. And I'm going to go ahead and read Chris's question. Uh, Chris says... I just got my first MacBook Air Friday, and I am loving it. It complements my 27-inch iMac and my iPhone and iPad. I had, up until this weekend, a three-month-old, 13-inch, and one-year-old, 15-inch MacBook Pro, which I sold within the hour after posting on Craigslist. Craigslist. I purchased the 13-inch with two gigabytes of RAM, 256 gig of an SSD, 
and the 1.86 gigahertz processor. I've been using it nonstop. I've loaded all my programs, including VMware Fusion and Windows 7, and still have 190 gigs of space left on the SSD. The reason for Windows 7 is that I have to be able to access IE uh, for a work issue. The main programs I run, based on what I see open in the dock, constantly and consistently are Mail, Safari, Text Expander, Launch Bar, iStat Menu, Keynote, and occasionally, of course, VMware Fusion. My first question is this, RAM. I look at Activity Monitor and I see remaining system memory drop as low as 40 megabytes with all of this activity, but don't see any de degradation in the operation of my computer. Should I be concerned about the lack of remaining system memory? Will it at some point impact the smoothness of the computer operating properly and smoothly? If so, or do you think I'd be better off getting a MacBook Air with more horsepower? I do have uh, 14 days to return it and upgrade to the maximum MacBook Air if necessary. I do plan on making this my only notebook as I'm hooked on the form factor. I love this machine. And uh, I guess I'll read the second question and we'll answer them in order. Question number two, I recently started working in a PC environment and as part of my responsibility to create a lot of keynotes, or at least I try to use keynote. When I create a keynote and share it as a PowerPoint, some of the text doesn't convert spacing and alignment as well as with the videos. It's frustrating because I'm then forced to use MS Office PowerPoint and tweak them and insert other video formats. Would I be better off creating them in Office for Mac and not bother with Keynote? I'm really looking for a way to hand these presentations off without touching them twice. Okay, so my quick answer to number two before we dig into number one is, yeah, if if the goal is to, and I've said this about everything, uh, if the goal is to create something in uh, in PowerPoint format or Word format or Excel format and it has to live in that format and you're doing anything more than just rudimentary formatting, create it in that piece of software initially. It's just not worth the headache of that conversion. It's not going to be perfect. Uh, it's simply just not, you know, it just doesn't work that way. So, so yeah, that, that I, I would say to create it in office for Mac and you can try the, only... the new office 11. Yeah, I, I got that. I, I just found it one day. Anyways, no, the, what I would suggest that I've run into this as well is, you know, if you can, I've, I've seen one source of problems is that if the font that you use isn't available in the other machine, yeah, then these sort of things happen. So if you that's can at true. all that guarantee with, with PowerPoint too. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. if you can at all make sure that the font that you're using um, is one where, you know, it's going to be on the PowerPoint on the other end, then uh, that, that, that I found that that helps, but yep. yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the there's, nothing's perfect as far as exporting to a format because yeah. a lot of them are kind of closed. So, yep. All right. So to his Ram question that I want to answer this in a, in a couple separate parts, just because you're the, the Mac OS 10 is built to maximize the use of Ram. And as such, it's not uncommon for you to see your remaining memory or free memory drop down below a hundred megabytes. Uh, that in and of itself does not mean that you've run out of RAM. However, it's likely that you've run out of RAM simply because you're running with two gigs. And uh, John, you want to explain how uh, how to look for that or some of the things to, to check? To oh, the symptoms of symptoms. Right. And the, there are a couple of symptoms. So one, Dave, is do you have any swap files? Mm. And how would I know if I have swap files, John? I don't know. I've checked well, for it. You know, I'm trying to quit, but you know. <laughs> Wait. Oh, okay. It is in a, uh, okay. So, so you could look where I think he was looking before. So you can look in activity monitor. Yep. That will show you swap used. How many bytes? And for example, right now my MacBook is using zero bytes, which is outstanding. So, so what's, let's talk about that. Cause we're looking in activity monitor and then at the bottom, there's a set of five, what Apple calls. Right. Tabs. I, I did. Yes. It's the memory and it shows swap used. That's, um, because I was going to suggest something else, because I, I don't think that's quite enough information, or at no, least other programs give you more. Right, but let's let's use this as a as a quick barometer. And yet, there and there is a, a, another place or another way we can look. But you know, swap you. So you've got zero. That indicates that for whatever you've done with the machine since you rebooted, essentially, uh, you're you're okay, or what you're doing with it now, because the, the machine will dynamically allocate this. But, you know, at what number is that going to be a problem? So because mine is showing that I've got 23 megs of, of swap used that that still isn't a problem from my standpoint. I, I think if you're going over three or four hundred megabytes of swap used, 
then yeah, you're, you know, you're, you're consistently running out of memory. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So or I've had gigabytes. The only time yeah, I've well, had that happen. Sure. Yeah. Well, the only time I have that happen is if, if I have a need to run, um, uh, VMware, mm-hmm. I'll have it normally. I think I have it set for three gigs or four gigs and my machine has wow. six. So, um, well, uh, you know, you got to give windows a little breathing. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, it's a whole other operation. But that's when I know, because then the system just starts getting... And, and the other thing I can see, Dave, so one thing is I see that the uh, size of the VM gets larger. Yeah. And the other is that you're going to notice this figure page outs. Okay. The more of those occurring, the more likely you're going to see uh, degradation in performance. Yep. Because that's when you're doing the shuffle between physical memory and... Though, you know, I just thought about this, Dave. In this case, say, yeah. well, in this case, with the air, with an SSD, it, you definitely will not notice as much degradation versus a mechanical drive. That's right. That's right. Yeah, because you're moving from RAM to RAM. Now, the the you know, the RAM inside an SSD and the the access to it is still much slower than access to your actual RAM in the machine. But it's much faster than it would be, as you said, John, to access a mechanical drive. I, I, I was very close to upgrading my machine. You know, I've got four gigs and four gigs of RAM in my machine. That's very close to upgrading that. And, and then sort of backed off once I put the SSD in, because I no longer saw, I no longer experienced. I still see it uh, when I look in, in activity monitor or, or any of the other tools. Uh, I still see that I'm paging out, but I don't feel it, if that makes sense, because it's, you know, it's it's much, much faster writing out to uh, to the swap files and, and managing all that stuff. Still get some of it, though, as it pauses to create or or, or destroy a swap file file. But, uh, you know, that's, it works right now to his question. Yes. If he should, in my personal opinion, as, as to the question of whether he should get more. Yeah. My answer is yes. Yeah, I two gigs. The the thing is, you can get too little memory, but it, it, it's not a bad thing if you have too much memory. But it's a bad thing if you have too little, and if for no other reason than you know resale value. But but two to me is, I, I would not even be comfortable running any Mac OS ten machine with just two gigs of RAM. To me, that's uh, at least for for you know the type of things that I do. That, yeah, that's your inner geek speaking. In your, and you're right. I mean, it, it's, it, you know, two gigs is low, but it is very functional for a lot of people. It, it, however, in, in Chris's case, he points out that he's running VMware a lot. And as you said, John, you've got to chunk off at least half a gig, you know, probably a gigabyte to uh, as a minimum to VMware to run Windows and, and at least make Windows yeah. happy. That, yeah, you know, you may even find that four gigs you're still paging out. I certainly do. But again, you know, I've got my, my inner geek shines through all the time. Uh, that's why we do what we do here. So, yeah, our, our views on this are a little bit tainted because we've we've seen we we push things to the limits anyway. For a lot of people, two gigs is probably going to be enough, but not for you, Chris. I think you need four. I, I would go to the four. I, if you could do more, I'd do it. But you can't. So. Mm-hmm. Right. And he should send that old machine here for testing. Not, he shouldn't turn it back to Apple, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's right. Yeah, send it here. We'll we'll see if that two gig works. <laughs> <laughs> we'll let you know. We'll report back in time. Uh, anything else, John? Before we move on to our next uh, our next questioner. As far as I can tell, the most cores you can get is twelve. Okay. Okay. You can get two six core processors. So. As far as this topic, no. Thank you. All right, good. Okay, good. Thanks. Yeah. yeah, we'll jump around a little bit. That's fine. All right, so to the next uh, interrogator here is, uh, is Weddle C. Hey, John and Dave. This is Weddle C in Indiana. Me and my wife both have iPhone 4s, and she was using her iTunes account, and I was using mine, but she had only purchased three or four free apps, and I found out that we could share by both using my account on each of the phones so we could share our apps. Um, recently, when she was going to update her apps on from the iPhone, um, she went to update her apps, and it asked her for my password, and then it updated the apps that were in my name, and then it went and asked for her password and updated the apps on her phone. Well, I got kind of tired of that annoyance and decided to go ahead and delete out all of her apps, only put my stuff on, and then we resynced it 
with only my stuff and then went and re-downloaded the ones that she was using that she had had before and downloaded them in my name. Now when we go to the general settings under the store, it lists me being signed in and I can sign out and sign back in and it'll still be under my account. I can even go to the iTunes portion and do the same thing and it'll show me being signed in and I've tried signing out and signing back in. Or I can go to the app store and even you can get, there's a trick where you can go to the categories tab and go to the bottom and even from that iTunes store app on the iPhone, you can sign out and then sign back in and make sure you're under your account. And with her not having any apps in her name, whenever she goes to update her apps from the iPhone, it always asks her for her password. And even if they're apps that were in my name, if it tries to update them, it'll say, sorry, you haven't purchased these. You need to repurchase these apps. Everything works fine if you update and resync from the computer, but it's just kind of annoying sometimes. She'll be away from her computer for two or three days, and an update will come out, and she'll want to update that from the iPhone. And if it's a paid app, she can't do that under my account. And I was just wondering if there's any way to force the iPhone to clear out her old account information so that we could start updating apps from my account on her phone from the phone. Anyway, thanks for any help that you might have. All right. So this is very interesting. It It's good to, to discuss this topic every now and again, because it's good to remind everybody out there that you can, in fact, have uh, the apps that you buy through the app store uh, can be shared to all the devices that you plug into your computer, but can also be shared to all the devices plugged into any of the five computers that you authenticate as uh, as being part of that iTunes store account, just like you could share your music with, you know, your your wife or your kids or your spouse, or, you know, whoever uh, you can also share uh, the apps the same way. So so that's that's how things started here, obviously, with with Weddlesea and his wife. But uh, but then they decided they didn't want to have apps owned by two different users. They just wanted to to do them both the same. And it seems like there's some setting lingering on that iPhone uh, that's holding to that store account. I would, you know, and I know what else said he did this in, you know, in settings. Uh, there is a store section there and you can you can sign in there. And, and then, of course, inside the store itself, uh, there is that trick at the bottom of the categories list. When you click on app store, uh, you can go to categories and you can sign in and out there. It sounds like there's something left on that phone that's holding her username. And and I would do a restore of the phone. I would even restore it from backup uh, first, because, of course, that that keeps all of her other settings. It may keep this one. But restoring restoring the iPhone from backup might might just be the magic answer. Uh, it might not be. But uh, but that's the first place I'd start. If you can't do it from a restore from backup, then you've got to restore it. But don't do a backup uh, or don't let it let it refresh from the backup and simply reinstall all your apps and rebuild all your settings for mail and and all that stuff. You know, there there is the one thing and I don't know if this impacts store stuff or not, but if you go to. Uh, general settings on the iPhone or, or, you know, any iOS device uh, settings, general, and then reset. There is a reset network settings in here and that wipes out a lot of passwords and stuff. I don't know if it mucks with the store. Uh, it probably doesn't, but it's not a terrible thing to do. Uh, and that might get, uh, it might get you what you need. Um, I, I don't have any other thoughts on this one, John, do you? <sighs> No, I'm only one person with one device. This, okay. this is, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's beyond beyond your scope, huh? Well, I've I've had I've heard of people complaining about this too, where they're surprised by you know what what the uh, device is asking for, but yeah, I, I never ran into it. No, I'm with you. Yeah, clear it off. There's there's some old craft somewhere. Yeah, yeah. That that's that's what it is, and and a reset should do it. Huh. All right. So now we've got two uh, MacBook. Uh, MacBook Air troubleshooting kind of things. And it's more just general troubleshooting. It doesn't matter the, the computer type. So we're going to play one comment and read the other and then and then talk about them a little bit as we as we wrap up here. So uh, 
So let's see what uh, let's see what we have from. Start with Connor. Hello, Mac Geek Gabbers. This is Connor P. Um, my mother is having some issues with her iMac, or I'm sorry, her MacBook Air. According to her, I've actually yet to see it happen because I've been, uh, I have not been around it much, but she is apparently getting a large number of kernel panics. Um, I've sort of done all the regular voodoo maintenance, uh, anything that's possible to do in Onyx I've done. I've flushed caches. I've repaired commissions. Um, I have booted onto the DVD, which is quite a chore, actually, uh, without having actual DVD drive. I ran the Apple hardware test, so the memory is okay. I tried to repair the disk, and the the hard drive is okay. Um, And I'm really at a loss. She's not running out of disk space. She's got about 35 gigs free on her 80-gig drive. Sorry about that. Um, so I'm really at a loss what's causing all these issues for her. Um, maybe she's making it up so she can get a new MacBook Air. But I don't know. We'll just have to see. So my question is, do you know of some other causes of frequent kernel panics? This is where you cut me off. All right, cool. And then uh, Marcus writes, I have a request regarding my four-year-old MacBook, so actually not a MacBook Air. I recently decided to upgrade the RAM from the one gigabyte, one gigabyte that the MacBook came with to two gigabytes that I bought from Crucial.com. I installed the new RAM, and shortly thereafter, the MacBook started shutting down unexpectedly. The shutdown occurs totally randomly. There is no warning. The screen goes black, and the computer is off. I can start the computer up again. It will run fine for a while. Then it will shut down again. Sometimes it works fine for 30 minutes. Other times it's only two minutes. I can't replicate the shutdown by doing anything specific. Like I said, it seems to be totally random. Aside from the unwanted shutdowns, the computer seems to be running fine when it's on. Since the problem started occurring shortly after I installed the new RAM, I figured that the problem must be related to it. I took the new RAM out, installed the old original RAM, thinking the problem would go away. Unfortunately, it has not. Sudden shutdowns still occur even with the original RAM installed. I checked that I had the latest firmware installed. It is. I reset the PRAM and SMC, yet the problem persists. Any ideas what might be causing this issue? All right. So we're talking about issues here. Kernel panics and and shutdowns, though it's possible that they are software related more often than not, especially in a when when things are random. That's when uh, that's when to me, you know, I always start thinking hardware, Uh, but we might be able to pinpoint which hardware or if it's not hardware, what software component is causing a problem. So um, now just to to review, some may not have seen a kernel panic. What does a kernel panic on Mac OS 10 look like? And uh, last I checked, Dave, and I've had a few. Yep. And I'm going to tell you how I know that. <laughs> but first, it's usually where you get, sometimes you, you will see your screen start to turn gray and maybe kind of creeping downwards. And then you'll get a message, at least when I've seen it once. And you get a message, uh, something to the, and it comes up in multiple languages, but it basically says that the machine is hosed and hold down the power button because it's uh, <laughs> something really bad happened. I forget That's the exact only, wording. still working. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but it's where you, you will see that when you see a message in multiple languages telling you how to restart the machine, that's, uh, the, that's at least the way that I've seen a kernel panic. Now, sometimes you may see some text in the background, yep. depending on what problem. So if at all possible, when this does happen, um, ask for a picture of the screen. You may see uh, who is causing the kernel panic. Another place to look, Dave, is our pal, the console. I love the console because there's there's... Yeah, years worth of fun, loving reading in there. But the place that you want to look so you don't get overwhelmed is the file section slash library slash logs. And there's a category called panic reporter. And those are kernel panic reports. Uh, so poke around in one of those and uh, it may lead you. And, and I'm with you, Dave. So I'm looking at some of my recent uh, kernel panics here. Yep. I saw one here, and it had something... Okay, so one here was definitely caused by... Uh, it happened a little while ago, but this was caused by software. The um, Some versions of the Cisco VPN client 
which I've used in the past, yes. um, tend to get very intimate with the networking portion of the software in the OS, and sometimes it conflicts yep. with something else. And in this case, it actually said, oh, uh, kernel loadable modules in backtrace with dependencies com.cisco.nke.ipsec, blah, blah, blah. Right. So I'm going to say in that case, I'm, I'm pretty sure what happened is the machine wedged because something that the Cisco IPsec or the Cisco client did, uh, didn't make the Mac happy. That's right. And I've seen other references. You'll see the Mac. I mean, some of it is gobbledygook and hex, but I think I saw another one where we would reference dot IO USB dot something, which will point to you may have a USB device. Now, in the case of the Air, I think you're pretty limited in which bus the device is <laughs> uh, connected to. I think the only one is. Yeah. Yeah. The USB port. So, so, so that would be my suggestion in that case. And I would, Tend to agree with you, Dave, that the, the kernel panics are usually hardware related, except in this case of a you know network kernel extension. Yep, yep. Uh, the, you know, there's a couple other things that that I would look at here. One is um, if you if you look in uh, once you reboot, you know, come back up into single user mode. Uh, you want to preserve as much of the logs as possible and you don't want to clutter things with a new boot. So if you, if, you know, as soon as you have this, this kernel panic or whatever it is, uh, the reboot, what, you know, whatever your symptom is, hold down command S on the next boot up. That's going to bring you to, to single user mode. And you can use a command called more or, or less. Um, either one is fine. Uh, and, and type less and then space. And like you said, John, uh, you want to look at the logs. In, in this case, I recommend looking at slash var. Sl and this is all lowercase. So we're going to say less slash var slash log slash system dot log. Um, and if you uh, scroll to the bottom of that list with your arrow keys, and it may take some time because that that can get long. You can look and there'll be timestamps next to each event. You might be able to see what happened right before that that uh, that reboot happened. It might have gotten logged in here. And if it did, it's going to give you a pretty good indication as to what caused the problem. Another place to look, same place, less space slash var slash log slash kernel dot log. Uh, same sort of thing. That's going to that's going to provide a little bit uh, a different look at what's gone on. And in between those two, you may find something that that's giving you a good indication. If that kernel panic didn't get written, uh, you might still see something leading up to to that in in either or both of of these logs. That those are those are my favorite places to look. Uh, you know it it uh, it's possible on on Marcus's with the RAM swapping that you uh, shorted out something on the motherboard when you went in there or, or nudged something, uh, nudged the motherboard. And now the motherboard is shorting out occasionally on the case. Uh, you know, anytime you go in and out of a computer, it's possible of course, to damage, uh, other components or move other components that, that have nothing to do with the, 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 you know, whatever it is you went in there to do. So, and I'm going to ask a question because it wasn't clear to me when this happens. And I actually, I had this happen to me once, Dave. Yep. A number of years ago, and this was with my uh, tie book, as they called it. Yep. And here was the problem with that machine. They had uh, what I would consider a faulty uh, case design. And you could, if you carried the machine, much to my <laughs> shock, if you carried the machine with you and you flex the case just so, just by holding it, the battery would disconnect. So I'm with you, but I'm but because this machine, I believe if we're talking a four year old machine here, yeah. it may be that the battery is kind of wobbling about in there and maybe something got nudged. So so long. Uh, I'm building on your suggestion, but, yeah. but I think something may have gotten moved a little bit like one of the battery contacts. Now, my question is, does this happen when you're plugged into the power adapter? If, if it does, then I would lean towards what you suggested. If it only happens with the battery, then I would question either the battery itself. I mean, it, it could be just a coincidence that it's a, a faulty battery, that right. the battery just, you know, has some big problems and just decides to, you know, like a bad cell, for example. Right. Um, or it could be, you know, just disconnecting momentarily. And I saw it. I mean, it freaked me out the first time it happened. I'm like, I just got this new machine. I brought it from home into work. And I'm like, hey, everybody check this out. And then somebody's like, huh, how'd you turn it off? I'm like, Oh, oh no, don't. what a piece of, <laughs> they, they, 
and they fixed it. Cool. So, or I think they replaced the batteries. There's there something wrong with the mold on the battery. So, so yeah, the, you know, kernel panics again, you know, the, the way to tell if it's software versus hardware or the way I tell is it, if I'm trying to do a certain operation and every time I try to do that operation, the machine fails, then to me, that's software because it's a repeatable thing. Uh, but with hardware, Sometimes it's repeatable and consistent again, like you said, with a faulty USB device or, or something like that. But otherwise, you know, usually it's the random stuff that, that back when I was doing consulting, that was always the thing that kind of set off the, you know, the spidey sense alarm. It was like, wait a minute, this is not making sense. Let's let's start thinking about hardware as a as a potential culprit here. And more often than not, that's that's what it turned out to be. Uh, so. Anything else on this before we before we wrap up here, John? No, I I think uh, I think I'm done. All right, good. Uh, Michael sent in uh, not uh, not Michael Johnston, but a, a different Michael uh, sent in a poem uh, titled "A Poem for Those Over 30. And I wanted to share it with uh, we wanted to share it with you folks here because it uh, it certainly gave us a chuckle. So here we go: a poem for those over thirty. A computer was something on TV from a science fiction show of note. A window was something you hated to clean and Ram was the cousin of a goat. Meg was the name of my girlfriend and gig was a job for the nights. Now they all mean different things. And that really megabytes. An application was for employment. A program was a TV show. A cursor used profanity. A keyboard was a piano. Memory was something that you lost with age. A CD was a bank account. And if you had a three-inch floppy, you hoped nobody found out. Compress was something you did to the garbage, not something you did to a file. And if you unzipped anything in public, you'd be in jail for a while. Log on was adding wood to the fire. Hard drive was a long trip on the road. A mouse pad was where the mouse lived, and a backup happened to your commode. Cut you did with a pocket knife. Paste you did with glue. A web was a spider's home and a virus was the flu. I guess I'll stick to my pad and paper and the memory in my head. I hear nobody's been killed in a computer crash, but when it happens, they'll wish they were dead. Thanks for sending that in, Michael. Michael. Uh, <laughs> copy we have. The author is unknown, and I think that's just perfect. Uh, let's see, John, we have, uh, we have contact info. I know all of you, uh, and again, our thanks to you for being uh, supporters of the show with the premium subscription. Uh, we know you know how to contact us, but we're going to remind you anyway, uh, email to premium at macgeekgab.com. Premium? I at macgeekgab.com. That's right. You heard. All right. <laughs> well, if you're going to say that, then you know what I'm going to say? What's that? that? You, should all, you could also call us, Dave, and you'd want to call us at 206-666-GEEK. Which, which is, is 4335. Uh, you can Skype us to MacGeekCab. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. I'm Dave Hamilton. John's John F. Braun. Pete is Pilot Pete. MacGeekCab on Twitter will get you notifications about the show when it comes out when the show notes are done all that stuff and of course mac observer on twitter gets you everything from tmo i'd like to thank michael johnston who i mentioned before from the we have communicators podcast he's the one that converts this to aac for you and of course cashfly provides all the bandwidth i think uh i think that's it we're out of here we're out of here until uh until next week wow yeah. right that's it all right. Uh, I don't have anything else to add. I got nothing. All right. I'm going to go and rake some leaves. You do that. Well, they'll pick them up. Well, I got to put them in bags. Let me come pick them up. Yeah. I'll be in London this weekend. Tweet. Have fun in London. I hear you're gonna have some trouble with uh, with the scanners there, so so don't get caught with those nudie scanners, Pete. Made up.